Well, if you've been here for any length of consistency, the question that you probably have in your mind is, am I going to remember to dismiss anyone this morning, since I always forget? And so um, I think it's time if you uh, have a child who's in kindergarten through second grade and they want to be dismissed at Children's Church, they're welcome to do so now. For the rest of us, we continue our series on Deuteronomy in Deuteronomy chapter 10. Deuteronomy chapter 10, starting in verse 12. And now, O Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in His ways, to love Him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to observe the Lord's commands and decrees that I am giving you today for your own good? To the Lord your God belong the heavens, even the highest heavens, the earth, and everything that is in it. Yet the Lord set his affection on your forefathers and loved them. And he chose you, their descendants, above all the nations as it is today. Circumcise your hearts, therefore, and do not be stiff-necked any longer. For the Lord your God is God of God and Lord of lords, the great God, the mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality and accepts no bribes. He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow and loves the alien, giving him food and clothing. And you are to love those who are aliens. For you yourselves were aliens in Egypt. Fear the Lord your God and serve Him. Hold fast to Him and take your oaths in His name. He is your praise. He is your God who performed for you those great and awesome wonders you saw with your own eyes. Your forefathers who went down into Egypt were seventy in all, and now the Lord your God has made them as numerous as the stars in the sky. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we have read your word, and we pray now that you would bless the reading of your word with a fresh revelation of yourself. Fresh, Father, not because it is something new in the history of Christian doctrine, but fresh in that you reinstill the truths of your character and your will deep in our hearts, that we, be, we would be reminded again of your greatness, of your love, of your power, that we would be emboldened to live zealous lives of praise for you. We ask so in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Well, if you're uh, like me and you follow the news, there has been an awful lot to follow the last few weeks. You know, we have had uh, stories about seemingly uprising after uprising in the Middle East with this sense of wonder and expectation over what's going to happen next, right? Uh, if, if you follow the news, you've seen it seems like no matter which web page you go to, there's at least one, if not several, articles about the budget battle going on in the great state of Wisconsin. And yet, there, it almost seems as if the presidential primaries are starting a little earlier than I would like, but, but it seems as if people are already jockeying into position and pundit is talking and disagreeing with another pundit and so on and so forth. And you may have missed a rather intriguing story that, that almost, I think, in light of everything else going on, went underneath the radar. 
And it was an interesting story. If, again, if you follow, I'm, I'm a nerd, so I go to different websites and read different articles and read different publications. And it's interesting to see how one person reports something and how another person reports the same thing. And which details one person includes and which details another person does not include. And, and so I did a lot of digging on this one story because it was of interest to me. You may have heard the story of these four Americans aboard the yacht called the Quest who were killed by a group of Somali pirates that had captured their ship uh, in, in the waters off of the coast of Africa. And this ship was owned by the, the, the Adam family. I think it was Sean and Jean Adam. And, and, the, and some news stories, you know, they just reported those bare basics, and some got a little deeper and made it a little more interesting. See, um, the husband, Scott, he was a, or Sean, excuse me, he was a retired Hollywood film executive. And about ten, year, ten years ago, God really got a hold of his heart. And he felt convicted and he felt moved to seek and to serve God in a newer way. So the first thing he did was he began enrolling, while he was still working as a Hollywood film executive, in Fuller Theological Seminary in California. And he began taping classes towards getting his master's degree so that he could serve God in whatever way he felt God may be leading him to, even though he didn't know what that yet was. He sacrificed the time and the money to get that master's degree. And, and, a, and a little bit of time went on, and then he said, you know what, God wants more of me. God wants, God wants me to do something else. And so he began actually teaching a course at Fuller on, you know, faith and cinema and how to integrate your Christian faith in a way that you could bring God glory in the film industry. And then about seven years ago, he and his wife felt like God called them to something even deeper and, and, and larger. And he said, I'm going to retire. I'm going to walk away. And, and he sold his house. And, and so then they just had their boat, the Quest, which admittedly was a large yacht. And, and they had their boat, and they said, we're just going to live all that all year. And we feel like God's calling us to distribute Bibles. And so we're going to take our boat, and we're going to sail around the world. And we're going to go to some ports of harbor that most people would say, hey, I'd like to go there. But then we're also going to go to ports of harbor that most Western tourists would never want to go to because it's a little dangerous. And so we're going to go to the mix, and we're going to personally go and try to distribute Bibles because we think God's Word needs to be in people's hands that don't have it. In seven years, they distributed 10,000 Bibles. And I don't mean like they pulled up on a dock, dropped a box of books, and sailed off. I mean they personally took Bibles and put them in people's hands and talked to them. And again, sometimes this took them to relatively safe areas. Sometimes this took them to very dangerous areas, like when they were off the Somali coast. And friends of theirs said, guys, you know, this is dangerous. You know, you're putting yourself in a dangerous position. Why don't you do this differently? And you know, it was amazing to read some of the quotes that they themselves said in literature, in documents, that they, were, where they said, this is what God is calling us to. God has given us a mission. That mission is to distribute these Bibles, and we will fulfill His mission. There is something wonderfully beautiful when you see someone, or you hear a story about someone, especially someone living in our day and time, I think, that has been so captured by the wondrous love of Jesus Christ that it turns their life upside down. And they begin making a radical response to who he is and to what he has done. And, and that is the direction the text takes us in this morning, is to consider what our reaction is to the wondrous love of God. 
So we're going to look at three, you know, kind of major points here this morning. First one is that God's love in action is so wonderful that you might call it crazy. You might call it a crazy love, as some authors have. If you're here last week, you heard Pastor Jeremy give a fine exposition of Pastors 9 and 10, noting that God doesn't save us because of our righteousness, but because of His righteousness, His choice. And the text this morning, you probably saw, kind of further develops those themes, stays fairly consistent with several of them, amplifying others. We see this morning, we're reminded that God is the King over all of the heavens and over all the earth. He's the boss. He's in charge. He calls the shots. There may be other gods that people bow down to. There may be gods of finance, god of work, gods of family, gods of fashion, gods of safety. But ultimately speaking, God is the only God. He is the only true king. He is on the throne. Theologians would look at a passage like this and say it's a passage teaching God's sovereignty or his rulership. In verse 14, the Lord your, to the Lord your God belong the heavens, even the highest heavens, the earth, and everything that is in them. A theologian once said that there is not a single inch of the universe that God doesn't look at and say, it's mine. I own it. It's mine. God owns the mountaintops. God owns the sun. God owns the oceans. God owns the whales. God owns the produce and stop and shop down the street. He owns the car in your driveway. He owns the clothes on our backs. He owns us, whether or not we're even really willing to admit the fact. We can be so easily seduced into thinking that no one is in control or that someone is in control other than the living God. Foolishly, we become deceived into thinking that presidents, kings, and that dictators rule the world. And as we watch the news, we sit on the edge of our seat, afraid that things might somehow spiral out of control and degenerate at any moment. We read, our, you know, you go online like I, some good or for better or worse do, and you, you look at a site like the Drudge Report, and they're all on one page. You're like, earthquakes, winter storms, budget catastrophes, government shutdowns, and you look at it all there on one page, and you just think, oh my goodness, it's all falling apart. You know, what's going to happen? I don't know. And, and, and I talk to some people, and you, know, you get anxious, and you get nervous, because it seems like the world as we know it could just cease to exist and that maybe, you know, the guys who made the movie 2012, maybe they had something right. And maybe, maybe, there, was some, maybe there was some truth in the Mayan calendar. And, and this, this is the year is all we got left. We start to fear and worry. And then, and then if we're wise, we turn back to the pages of sacred scripture. And we hear the voice of God saying, I know that the Lord is great. That the Lord is greater than all gods. The Lord does whatever he pleases. In the heavens and on the earth, in the seas and all their depths, he makes clouds rise from the ends of the earth. He sends lightning with the rain and brings out the wind from his storehouses. It's very natural for us in life as we see what's going on in the world around us or we feel the chaos within to be anxious and to be afraid. And I want to assure you this morning from this text that God is very much in control. That Whatever is going on in the world or in your individual lives this morning, God knew it was going to happen before one of our days even came to be. God is not surprised. God doesn't get thrown a curveball. God doesn't get caught off guard. 
And God always and ever has the power to direct things according to His will. But, you know, we may ask the question, okay, so God is all-powerful. God is sovereign. But what kind of a God is He? It's a fair question. I mean, I mean being with unbridled power could be a little dangerous. You know, you, you may be familiar with the, kind of the old adage that, that first started with British historian Lord Acton. Power tends to corrupt, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Great men are almost always bad men. So we can say God is all-powerful. God is, if you will, the only superpower in the universe. But what kind of character does God have? I don't know about you, I, I, I used to love, um, when I was growing up, T- TBS, TBS almost every Saturday or Sunday had, you know, all the, they either had the westerns or they had, you know, the kind of black and white Japanese monster flicks. And I was a guy, you know, I think, I think you can't really be for King Kong or Godzilla. It's like one or the other. It's like Yankees, Red Sox. You can't have them both. And so I was always a Godzilla guy. I like, and, and the titles of these movies were always great, right? You know, you had Godzilla versus Mothra. That's inventive. You had, you know, Godzilla and Godzilla's son. Godzilla versus King Kong. And the plot was really always the same, right? If you've seen them. You've got some gigantic monster that can do just about anything they want. And, you know, and eventually they come to Hong Kong or some other city. And they walk up on the city. And basically they do a dance party on top of the city and crush building after building despite all the tanks that are, you know, firing things at them until they just kind of decide to leave and walk away. You've got this creature with unbridled power that just does whatever he wants with it and destroys everything in their path. And so it's very first to say, God has unbridled power, but how does he dispense that power? It's a really important question. We may be compelled to worship God because he's greater than anything else. But the manner in which we worship him depends an awful lot on his character, doesn't it? What kind of character does God have? Verse 18, he defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow and loves the alien, giving him food and clothing. In a culture without Social Security, Medicare, 401Ks, or any other form of government assistance, we see God in his compassion having a heart for those in need. We have the promise that no matter what someone's circumstances, however dire or dark they may be, God has not forgotten them. In fact, if you did a little survey of the history of Israel, one of the interesting things you would find is every time almost that God gets just done with the nation of Israel. You read through, whether it's Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, any prophet, the minor prophets, when God gets done with the nation again and again, the thing that drives him bonkers is when he says, you are neglecting justice. You are not caring for the widow. You are not caring for the orphan. You are not caring for the oppressed. You are not caring for those in need. Where is your heart? Your heart is no longer reflecting my heart. And he gets angry at, 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 at their lack of good character. God is the only superpower. And God is remarkably compassionate. God is the only superpower, and He is remarkably faithful. We see in verse 22, we're reminded of the promise that He made to Abraham. The promise He made to this one elderly man to say, I'm going to make a nation out of you. A nation. Even though you and your wife, Sarah, your bodies are as good as dead, I'm going to build a nation from you, Abraham. And God brought them down to Egypt. And they stayed in Egypt, their descendants, for 400 years. And then He brought them back up 
And they were so numerous, what were they? They were a nation. They were a people group. They had gone from a person to a people group in 400 years because God was faithful to His promise. God is a superpower full of compassion, full of faithfulness. This is the God, Christian, that when we sing, You are mighty to save, we are singing to. This is the God that we pray to. This is the God that we give to. This is the God we are compelled to surrender our lives to. The God who says, I do all that I please. There's nothing I can't do. But I am a faithful, merciful, compassionate God, readily aware of what's going on in your life. This is the God that if you are not yet in Christ, we compel you to surrender your life to in faith and repentance. Not some far-off, all-powerful God, but a a powerful God who has made Himself near in love and compassion. This is the God we worship. And yet, how has His wondrous love been displayed in this text? We see in verse 15. Yet the Lord set His affections on your forefathers and loved them. And He chose you, their descendants, above all nations, as it is today. I love that God chose. Back to where we were last week. God could have set His affection on anyone or anything. I, I mean, I love, I love the, I don't know, I forget what you'd call it um, in grammar, since grammar is something I'm awful at, but the yet. There's the yet. But God did all these things, yet. It's a big yet. God has done all these things, yet He chose you. I mean, it's almost like God's trying to say, hello, that's a shock, guys. Moses is trying to say, I hope you're surprised, because you should be surprised. God was that great, had that many options. It's like, I mean, for some of us, this is a scary statement to make, but you remember that period in your dating days, maybe you're still in it, when you evaluated your options and how many different options you had? God had unlimited options. And he said, yet I choose Israel. That's going to be my choice. He chose the people that we saw last week were stiff-necked. And Jeremy at length talked about their stubbornness and their hard hearts and their kind of not go with the flow, but God, we know better attitude. And God, the wonder of this kind of love, I mean, it's so deep. I've got almost called crazy because it breaks my conceptions of what love really is as we understand it. God doesn't say, get it together, Israel, and then come to me. He doesn't say, hey, Israel, when you fill this litany of requirements, then you can come and worship me. He says, I saw you a complete mess of stiff-necked character and behavior, and I chose you that I might change you and make you lovely. That's the God we worship. Same God that Peter writes, speaking to believers like us, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may desire the praises of Him who calls you out of darkness in His wonderful light. We see the love of this powerful God in action in choosing those that of themselves He has no reason to choose. Now, you know, in at least I think in part to our modern Western ideals, of freedom and autonomy. There's some, there's some of us, there's some believers in the world today that have a, have a hard time with this idea of election or choosing or God's predestining. And I appreciate the hard time they have with it because 
I once had a hard time with it, in honesty. And yet I want you to notice here in this text how God's choice is so closely connected to God's love. God is the king of the universe. He's the ruler of everything. He can do whatever he wants. And the logical extension is, well, he can choose whoever he wants. And, it's, and it is a gift of love, a crazy love. I remember first time I ever taught a group of people on predestination. And, you know, we went through, we went through this idea of God choosing as an act of love from his power. And, and it was a divided room. Like, you ever, like, teach, you ever been, no matter what you're teaching, you ever, like, trying to tell someone something, and you're telling a group of people, and some of them, like, want to look at you like you're awesome, and some of them you think they're going to lynch you right there? That's what this room was like. You know, I had half the room who were like, if, one of them even said, quite vocally, if this is who God is, I don't know that I want to worship God. And all of a sudden, you know, the pastor was like, did I mess up? <laughs> and then I had another half of the room that were, were okay with it, and, and we dialogued, and we worked through passages. And yet, to this day, I remember one young man who got very quiet, and, and you know, his face got very, very, very soft and emotional. And he said, "I'm just the opposite." He said, "This makes me love God more." He said, "Because if it's true as as it seems to be," he said, "that God loves me." That God set His love and affection on me. Independent of me, that God just said, I want you. I choose you. That God didn't respond to, to what I did, but that God said, I'm gonna initiate. I'm gonna initiate, you know, and we can understand that because there's some of us that, you know, we can be, he said, I'm afraid. I'd be afraid if, if, if God's love was a reaction to my love. Good grief, I may mess up my way out of that love, but if God just looks upon me and says, I want you, That makes me feel remarkably wanted and valued and loved. And he said, I feel safe. And I love God so much more. All of a sudden, this idea of God's choosing, it was not a stale doctrine to him. It was not a mechanical process. It brought home the reality of God's love before in a way that nothing else in his life ever had. He knew he he wasn't going to lose it. He felt safe. The king's love in action is so wonderful you might really call it crazy. And yet, what are, we, what are we as believers supposed to do with that kind of a love? Second point. Our response to the king should entail everything that we have. You know, in discussion election, sometimes people get this, this wrong idea that God's choice, God's election, is an excuse for Christians to be lazy and to not do anything. And... Seeing the absurdity of that statement, they say, well, forget it. Forget it. It can't be true. And yet, if we look at the Scriptures, almost every time election in context is discussed, it's discussed alongside of a call for humanity to do something. Theologically, we would say divine sovereignty is held up alongside of human responsibility. Scripture will say something, because God has done X, you must do Y. You see this in, even in the book of Acts. Paul is, is, is in one city is facing an awful lot of opposition and God says to him, hey listen, keep staying, preach fearlessly because I have many there who are going to be saved. In fact, if, you, if we read the biographies of a lot of the, the founders of the modern missions movement, people like William Carey, 
J. Hudson Taylor. These guys went overseas. I think in Taylor's case, he went over to India, and he labored for seven years before a single person converted. Seven years! That's all he did. It wasn't like he's like, oh yeah, I, I do this you know, job you know, 8 a.m. to 12 p.m. and I share the gospel for 30 minutes a day. All he did was share the gospel. Seven years before a single person came to faith. And if you read a lot of these modern pioneers of the missions movement, they all believed in God's election. And they said, if I didn't believe in it, I'd quit. Because if I went over there and I spent seven years and no one said yes, I'd pack up my bags and go home and think, I'm just not good at this. I can't convince people. I can't, I'm not articulate enough to say the right thing. I don't know how to answer their questions. It all depends on me, and I can't bear this burden. Let me quit. And they said, no, they said, I know, however bad I may be, that eventually someone's going to say yes. Because God's worked in their heart. He set His affection on them. So eventually someone is going to say yes. And, and we have these two ideas held up. And, and it, how humbling of a thought is that for us? Because there are many of us, I think, that would probably, if we were honest, we would say, we are not as bold as we could be in sharing the gospel because we are afraid, because we don't know what to say, because we don't know what verses to go to, because we're afraid they're going to ask some kind of question that we're not going to have an answer for, because we walk around with this thought, it all depends on me, and I might screw it up. My, my wife was driving with my daughter, Yesterday, I think, and they drove by uh, Stop and Shop in Norwell. And you know, there's that that white former church. I assume it was a church. Looks like a church right there, next to the Stop and Shop in Norwell. My daughter says, "Mommy, this is great. There's a church right next to the the grocery because they're in the grocery in the grocery store, so people can get their groceries and go to church. And that's so great. That's so wonderful." It'll be easy for them to go to church. And, you know, they, they, I mean, they, they do, I think, just Tai Chi classes in, the, in that building now. And, and my wife says to Charlotte, she says, no, honey, you know, that's not a church anymore. They don't, they don't worship Jesus there. My daughter starts crying. She's crying. They don't worship Jesus? Well, we've got to do something about that, Mommy. We've got to go back there and we've got to lock that door so no one can get in. And, and, and hear about something other than Jesus. She says, she said to me last night and this morning, Daddy, you've got to remind people in church that they've got to start telling people about Jesus so that people will know about Him and they won't go to church and not worship Jesus. And in that moment, I wished I had her, I wished I had her heart. Because she was more broken by the thought than I was to her glory and my shame. We know... We may strike out 99 times, eventually someone's going to say yes, because Christ hasn't returned yet. And because Christ hasn't returned yet, the Scriptures tell us there's still people that God has chosen that are going to be saved. And so, it's a win-win. Eventually someone's going to say yes. we just got to start talking. we got to start sharing. we got to start praying. we got to start witnessing. And then it's going to start happening. What God's crazy love beckons a radical response. What does that entail? Well, followers of Christ, we see here, are told to circumcise their hearts and not be stiff-necked. We lingered, Jeremy lingered at length, what did it mean to be stiff-necked? It meant to be stubborn, to be hard-hearted, to disobey God, to fight God, to not cooperate with God. And, and you can see, I think, based on the context, that to be, have your heart circumcised is, is 
Kind of just the opposite of that. To be teachable. To be humble. To cooperate with God and, and, and what He calls us to. You know, there is a beautiful thing, as a pastor, I can tell you, there's a beautiful thing about someone who's humble and teachable. I've been blown away by people older in years and older in the faith than me that still are hungry for more of what God has for them. That are so hungry to, to become more holy, to give more of their lives to God. That are still willing to accept correction if they require it because they've, they've latched on to this idea. I need, just like I was humble in the moment I surrendered my life to Christ, I need to be humble every day because I have not yet arrived. It's a beautiful thing about that. There's five other things he tells us here specifically as well. He says in verse 12, And now, O Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in His ways, to serve the Lord your God, with, to love Him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to observe the Lord's decrees that I am giving you today for your good. Let's look at each of the five of them briefly. We are to fear the Lord. Well, I guess in light of God's power, that doesn't seem like a huge stretch, Right? You're right to fear the big guy on the block. You're right to fear the God who can do with everything, anything he wants. I remember, remember I was a senior in high school, and you hit the place, if you're a senior in high school or if you're a junior, depending on who you are, where senioritis sets in. And you're like, I'm done, I am ready to move on, I don't want to be here anymore, and I hit that place. And so one day, you know, I can't even love to tell this story because it shows how much of an idiot I was. So I decided I'm just going to skip school. And that's not the idiot part. The idiot part was the plan in action. I'm going to skip school. So I decided I'm going to skip school. And so I just said, okay, well, I'll walk downstairs, and, you know, and, uh, and I'll go, and um, I'll, I'll open the door to the garage and close it so my mom thinks you know, it's been the front door, and I'll just kind of hide in the garage until she leaves. And then I'll go hang out with my friends all day. Somehow I didn't have the foresight to think that eventually not receiving a call from my mother, the school would call her. I, I'm embarrassed to say that that didn't dawn on me. And so it was really wonderful then when you, know, you hear the answering machine, the phone rings at 11 o'clock four times, and then the answering machine goes, and I hear my mom's voice, Hi, Christopher. Where are you? Ugh. I had a problem. I, 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 I saw two, you know, in that, it's a great one, like, ideas race through your head, and you're like, well, I could lie to her. I could, I could just lie to her, and she'll never know. Or I could tell her the truth. And either way seemed like a lose-lose, because either way I was afraid. And I had every right to be afraid. I was a moron. And, and she had the power to tell me I couldn't go out Friday night. So I had every right to be afraid. God is a God of love and a God of compassion, but He's a God of power. And He doesn't want us to presume upon His mercy. He wants to embrace His grace and mercy as we need it, but He doesn't want us to presume upon it when we say, well, you know what? It's not a big deal. God does not want us to have a it's not a big deal attitude in regarding our sin after we've been saved. Oh, it's, it's, just, it's just one night. Who cares? You know, it's just one lie. And it's not even a big lie. Who cares? It was just one look. It was just one statement. I'm not going to do anything about it. I'm not going to actually do it. I'm just going to think it. Oh, it, was just, it was just one thought, one prideful thought. I mean, come on. 
God will forgive me. There is a place for a healthy fear of the living God. The healthy fear that initially brings us to Him as we say, wait a minute, we're sinners in need of a Savior. And He is the great judge. And, and there's a healthy fear to be had every day we continue to walk with Him. Second point, we're to walk in His ways. God wants us to live like He calls us to live. He doesn't want us to walk through life with the Frank Sinatra chorus in our minds, I did it my way. Now, I've got the song on my iPod. I love singing it. Every time I sing it, people look at me like, that's the pastor? <laughs> it's a great song to, to listen to, not to be lived out. God has a way. He wants us to live His way. And yet, if, if someone were to ask you, tell me, what is the way of God look like in a marriage for how you should walk? What does the way of God look like for how you should date? What does the way of God look like for how you should deal with your finances? What does the way of God look like with how you should conduct yourself in integrity at the workplace, whatever that looks like? Could you give a response? Could you say, this is what, how God wants me to live in that situation? You should be able to. And, and could we then say, and you know what? Stumbling though I do, I try to live that way. I, I know the way and I try to live the way. Third point, we are to love him. Now, it's a fair question to say, how on earth, we're told two verses, you know, two sections earlier, we need to fear God. Now we need to, we're commanded to love God. How do fear and love go together? Because they don't just seem to make sense. You either fear someone or you love something. I mean, I've read Machiavelli. Machiavelli says, you know, would you rather be love or feared? And he said, I'd rather be feared because fear lasts longer than love. Um, and, 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 and he was a 17th century Italian. He had it, right? How, how do we fear someone and love someone? And I remember um, my father, while well, he was alive, he was, he was one of those guys who was just a big guy. And you, know, you know anyone that's just a big person, a strong person all the way around? My dad was the guy, I remember, he was really into antique cars and working on cars. And in our house in New York, we had a driveway that was like about a 60 degree incline. And uh, I remember one Sunday morning, my mother and I were off doing something, and my father was there, and he, you know, he put the car up on a jack. And, you know, to work on the car. And normally the very safety-inclined person was out of his rocker one morning, and he didn't put a block behind the rear tire. And so he's there underneath the Camaro, working on it, slides off the jack, falls right on top of him, rolls over his chest, down the hill into the fence. We show up about five minutes later. My father had gotten up completely fine and was pushing, trying to push the car up the driveway by himself. His hair, like, 80 different directions. My father's hand was about at least two and a half times the size of my hand. And I don't know if I just have small hands, but I know he had some big hands. You know, you know someone like that where you just look at their fingers and their fingers like the size of like your calf? That was my dad. And every time I looked at his hands, I was scared because I knew what they could do. I had, see, I had felt them. When I transgressed, I had seen how they could turn a wrench or take a post hole digger or lift a rock and throw it across the ground. I loved my dad, but I was scared of those hands. Fear and love are not always in opposition. It's amazing how sometimes they can work harmoniously together. God wants us to love Him. And as I see it, love has at least two components. Probably more, but in the Christopher Hemrick universe it has two. Desire and devotion. Desire and devotion. Listen to someone who is 
quite literally in the middle of the desert when they wrote this, expressing their desire for God. You, God, are my God. Earnestly I seek you. I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you. In a dry and parched land where there is no water. I have seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and your glory. Because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. I will praise you as long as I live. And in your name I will lift up my hands. I will be fully satisfied as with the richest of foods. With singing lips my mouth will praise you. On my bed I remember you. I think of you through the watches of the night because you are my help. I sing in the shadow of your wings. I cling to you and your right hand upholds me. That's desire. It's the kind of desire I would love to be able to pray with integrity every day that I had. It's the desire I want. So we have desire and then we have devotion. Are we devoted to God? You know, do we... Do we cling to Christ and cling to Him alone? Or do we commit spiritual adultery with our affections? They rest hand in hand. That's love. But how do we get that kind of love? Another fair question. Because I think some of us walk through life and we say, yeah, I want to love God more. But we walk through life almost as if we're expecting to be zapped one day. And it all of a sudden, like one day, we'll just, it'll be like, poof. The, you know, light switch goes off. Oh, I love God more. And we'll walk around. Th- and, and, and love doesn't work that way. Love is like a garden. It, it, it needs to be tended. It needs to be nurtured. It needs to be fed. If it's going to grow and develop good fruit. We need to tend our love for God. And so if we want to love God more, I, w- I would suggest one thing. And that is me- meditate on who God is and what He's done. Even as we're doing here in this text. And Christian meditation is a lot different than Eastern meditation. You know, in, in Eastern meditation, you know, the whole idea is empty your mind. Stop thinking about things. Reach, reach the inner you or, you know, focus. No, Christian meditation is a fixed focus on the character of God. You don't empty your mind. You fill your mind with thoughts of who God is, of what God has done. You know, it's as if you try to banish everything else away other than Him and who He is and what He's done. And so, you know, in line with this text this morning, I mean, what, what could we meditate about from this text this morning that might increase our love for God? We could use our imagination in line with biblical truth. Notice the connection. Use your imagination in line with biblical truth. So you could say, I'm gonna, you know, I'm going to take some time and I'm just going to imagine what it would have been like to have been there when God said, let there be light. And, this, and I'm going to imagine the sun bursting forth in radiance. I'm going to imagine God raising up the mountains and forming them. I'm going to imagine all the sun, the the snow-capped mountains. Imagine the the beauty and the wonder. And I'm going to think about every sunrise I've seen, every every beautiful sunrise I've ever seen where, you know, the the sun goes down just right. And and for just those few seconds sometimes, the horizon is a mix of pinks and oranges and reds. The kind that you just sit there stunned. And then before you know it, it's gone. And you say, I'm going to imagine what, you know, when I look up and I'm away from civilization and I just look up and I see the stars and I see the constellations and it's just like there's a whole world up there that I can't, that is just beyond my imagination. And I'm going to imagine all the creatures that God has made, the creatures in the sea and in the earth and in the sky. 
that, that God formed and that God gives life to and that God sustains. And, and, then, and then you look as you meditate and you think, God made and sustained all these things of wonder and beauty. And, I, and I've just thought about all of these things. And yet he says, I chose you upon which to set my affection. He could have chosen something else. It didn't have to be this way. He could have set his love and his affection on something else, but he set upon a humanity, a humanity living in rebellion against him. God demonstrated his own love, the Bible tells us, in dying for us while we were still in our sins. Before a thought of him had even crossed our minds, God died that those of us who believe might live. The more we fill our mind with the wonder of the gospel and, and God's choosing, as it relates to everything else it could have been, the more I think we will begin to love God. But it's a process. Fourth thing, we need to serve Him with all of our heart and soul. You've, like me, been there. Yeah, I did it, but with as little effort as I had to. I did whatever the job was, but with the bare minimum requirements and with the bare minimum heart condition. I did what I had to do, but the way in which I did what I had to do would make you think that I had no desire to do it all. Kind of like when you tell, um, you tell, sometimes you're in this position, you tell a young person to do something, and they don't want to do it, and they go, <gasps> and they turn around, and they just, and they stamp off. They've done it! <laughs> but the manner in which they've done it shows every moment they're in complete rejection and rebellion. But God says, no, I want you to serve me with all of your heart and with all of your soul. Things have come, um, you know, they've, they've come around. You know, uh, this week my, my family was sick the majority of the week. And here I was trying to take care of, you know, the, them, um, while at the same time trying to, you know, feel like I had my laptop open on the desk and trying to field emails and check my phone and do phone calls and think about a sermon I was supposed to preach some morning. And, and deal with the work responsibilities and also take care of the family. And I was really great for a couple of days. I was, I was good for a couple of days. By day four, lethargy and, and selfishness began to set in. And I can remember quite clearly being, you know, you know, at the kitchen sink doing dishes, and like, you hit the place where you weren't like, oh, did I get it clean? You were like, done, done. Okay, what's next? And just feeling sorry for myself and frustrated. And like, clear as day, I hear God just right out of Sunday school last week when I was teaching, Romans 12. This is your spiritual act of worship. And all of a sudden I realized that I was not far from God. I was in the presence of God. I was right where He wanted to be at that moment. And I could serve Him like a tantrum-crazed adult, let alone tantrum-crazed five-year-old. Or I could serve him, with, serve him and serve my family that I love with all of my heart. It was a choice. Fifth, observe all of his commands for they are for your good. Notice how things have come full circle. Initially we're told, yes, serve God, obey him, walk in his ways. Now we're told, observe all of his commands for they are for your good. It's almost like things deepen. We, de you know, we start off saying, okay, I need to do what God wants me to do. We finish saying, I do what God wants me to do because I know that he knows what's best. And there's a freedom there. Where we don't just live the truth. We live the truth knowing I've got it made. I'm blessed to live this way. God's crazy love beckons a radical response to Him. 
but will we give it? That's the question. Just close with this wonderful poem. All praise to Thee for electing me to salvation by foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctification of the Spirit unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus. I adore the wonders of Thy condescending love. I marvel at the true believer's high privilege within whom all heaven comes to dwell, abiding in God and God in Him. I believe it. Help me experience it to the full. Continue to teach me that Christ's righteousness satisfies justice and evidences thy love. Help me to make use of it by faith as the ground of my peace and of thy favor and acceptance so that I may always live near the cross. It is not feeling the Spirit that proves my saved state, but the truth of what Christ did perfectly for me. All holiness in Him and is by faith made mine as if I had done it. Therefore I see the use of His righteousness for satisfaction to divine justice and making me righteous. It is not inner sensation that makes Christ's death mine. For that may be delusion, being without the Word. But His death apprehended by my faith and so testified by the Word and by the Spirit. I bless Thee for these lively exercises of faith, for the righteousness that is mine in Jesus, for grace to resign my will to Thine. I rejoice to think that all things are at Thy disposal, and I love to leave them there. Then prayer turns wholly into praise, and all I can do is to adore and love Thee. I want not the favor of men to lean upon, for I know that thy electing grace is infinitely better. Would it not be a gift if five or ten or thirty years from now someone was using your life, the story of your life, instead of the Adams's? It's a story of a radical response to a crazy love given by the God of heaven. Wouldn't that be amazing?